If you have a Bible, turn please to Genesis chapter 3. I want to say thank you, as always, to those who help us uh, worship in song. Isn't it sweet to have people who are willing to just, again, help us to be able to sing truth and praises uh, to the Lord? I'm I'm grateful uh, every time that uh, this group and uh, Andrew and Kelly and all the rest are are part of what we do up here. And um, we are blessed and we should be grateful to God for that. I'm not going to make you stand today for the reading because it's a longer passage, but Genesis chapter 3 is our text for this morning. And if you found it, just listen along as we hear God's word for us this day. Genesis chapter 3. Oops, no, Now... The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, teach us through this tragedy that we might know you and have your grace and obey you. God, speak to us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the tests to know, one of the tests to know, if someone's view of the world is a right one, is the test of authenticity. And what I mean by that is, does the way that you view the world, does the way that you view life actually work? Example. If I believe that there is no absolute truth, I will walk out in front of buses. But if you do, you're absolutely squashed. So that view doesn't work in the real world. Even those who say that there is no absolute truth believe in absolute truth when they look at their bank statements. Does the way you view the world match reality? So consider the question when we discuss worldview... What has gone wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world we live in? Many people have a worldview that has no answer for the question of what is wrong with the world around us. For example, if you are an atheist, if you're a person who declares there to be no God, you have no method of explaining the problem of the world. Instead, all you can do is accept the world as it is. But you have no basis, if you don't believe that there is a God, in believing that anything has gone wrong. Because to declare something to be wrong implies a design, an intended right to the world. But a look at the world through genuine, honest eyes declares to us that something has gone wrong. The world we live in is hard. Things happen that we wish did not happen. People do things to people that we know are unacceptable. The earth itself does things that we wish we could prevent. Disease and disappointment abound. People die. We don't like the way the world is gone and that's why so many people spend so much time and money trying to escape the reality we live in by creating for themselves imaginary worlds of fantasy. Now, even if you're not a philosophical thinker, 
Don't you recognize that the world is broken? Wrong exists. We're not what we want to be. Things are not perfect. Things are not easy. Things are not smooth. Reality television exists. Politics exists. Well, in today's passage of Scripture, we're going to see why the world is broken. And it stems from something that happened around 6,000 years ago. But what happened has a lot to teach us in the here and now. If you're a note taker, prepare for four main points, but there will be some sub points in the latter ones, okay? Point number one, get ready to get started. Rightly keep the word of God. Now, guys, when I give you sermon points, know that this is not the only thing you could learn from this passage, right? Because it's one, I'm, I'm using that for verses one through six, and you could do a whole sermon of multiple points on one through six. But this is one thing that we can all hear from God today in this passage, is that we ought to rightly keep the word of God. Listen to verses one through six again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Okay, last time we were in the garden, right? Last time we visited the account of creation, everything was good. It was really good, right? God made a man and a woman in his image. He put them in a beautiful garden. He gave them work to do that was satisfying and not fatiguing. He provided for their every need. And God gave them only one restriction. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. That's it. Every other tree in the garden was fair game. Just one restriction. That's a pretty good life, don't you think? And suddenly into the perfect picture, and you've got to realize this, guys, if you're reading the Bible, everything's been good, 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 super good, all the way through, suddenly, this should be that shocking moment in the movie when everybody in the, in the audience goes, <gasps> that's really how you should feel here. Suddenly into the perfect picture slithers the strangest thing imaginable. I don't mean a snake, by the way. I mean an adversary. Who would be an adversary? What kind of an idiot? Well, let's just see. A serpent comes to oppose God. A creation comes to oppose the creator. And further study of scripture will reveal to us that this weird speaking animal is someone we now call Satan or the devil and he used his power in some way to act through a serpent and to attempt to destroy God's plan. Now, the devil or Satan, 
those are words that mean an opponent or an accuser or an adversary. This is a real spiritual being. You need to understand this. He's likely one of the angels that God created who, out of his own ambition, turned against God and tried to become his own ruler and his own master. It seems that the devil understood something of the intention of God to bring himself glory through the people that he made in his image. And so the devil, he didn't want to let it happen. He didn't want to let it succeed. And so he tries at the very beginning to derail the plan before it gets started. Well, communicating to the first and the only woman in existence at that day, The serpent attacks the character and the goodness of God. And he does this by twisting and then rejecting the truth of what God said. In verse 2, the serpent both misquotes and misrepresents the word of God. He asked the woman if God, the big, mean, selfish ruler of all, had actually forbidden her and her husband from eating any of the fruit that was in the garden. By the way, had God done that? Of course not. In verses 2 and 3, the woman responds to the serpent by almost, but not quite accurately saying what God had said. She rightly points out, God gave the people the right to eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. We know this. This is good. She doesn't, however, emphasize the goodness of the fact that God gave them all the trees to eat from except one. She misses the emphasis on the good. By the way, have you ever noticed how sometimes we can do that? Parents, to give your children something and somehow they fail to notice how nice you've actually been to them? Just saying. She also adds a restriction. She declares God forbade them to touch the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but God didn't make that rule, no matter how sensible it sounded. The woman then rightly declares that the people would die if they disobeyed the command of God, though she doesn't say surely the way God said you will surely die if you eat that fruit. Well, in verse 4, the serpent then directly contradicts the word of God. You won't die? How crazy is it to believe that? And then in verse 5, he tries to trick the woman into believing that God is holding out on her. If you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like your own God. You're not going to need God anymore. That's why God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. He doesn't want you to be as smart as him. Then in verse 6, tragedy strikes, right? The woman is confused by the devil. She looks at the fruit. It looks nice. It seems like it would be tasty. Who doesn't want to know more? Who, who doesn't want to be their own little God? Why couldn't she be her own master? Maybe she wouldn't die, maybe. So the woman reaches out and takes the fruit and eats it. And what's worse is she gives some of the fruit to her husband who is standing right there with her. Remember the phrase, stop the presses, from years ago? Newspapers are rolling out on the printing press, and the reporter has the story of, of a lifetime, and he yells, stop the presses, and everything gets on hold because we've got we to gotta print a brand new paper. Stop the presses. The man 
was there. The husband, the one charged with protecting the woman and leading the family, he stood there and watched his wife rebel against God. He watched her taken advantage of by the snake. He watched her be misled, but then he, with no misleading, no confusion, no lack of understanding, just takes the fruit out of her hand and willfully turns against God and bites down. That's the moment. What's the big deal? It's just some fruit, right? I could get you some more fruit if you're missing some fruit. It's a lot more than that, isn't it? Yes, the fruit was a real piece of fruit. We don't have any idea what it was, so stop assuming it's an apple. Maybe it was, I don't know. But the impact of that fruit on humanity is very real. What's more, though, the command of God was very real. God gave the people only one rule to follow. He gave them only one way to show that they were still under his leadership, that they still believed his word, that they were still the subjects and he was still the king. They had one way, only one way that they could say to God, Lord, I will follow you. And they chose on their own to say to God, I will not follow you. I will be my own master. I will make my own rules. The failure here was a failure to keep the word of God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you want to keep the commandments of God, you want to keep the word of God, that involves two things you've got to do. You have to, number one, believe the word of God, and number two, do what it says. It's a combination of right thinking and right acting that pleases the Lord. And when the serpent came to the woman, he challenged her in both of those two areas, right? First, he calls her, don't believe this that God said. It's not true. Then he calls her to disobey the command of God directly. And you know what? He's been doing the same thing to people like you and me ever since. Think about how many people in the world have rejected the truth of God's word and the gospel of Christ. And y'all, so many people decide not to obey the commands of God. You know why? Because they don't want to be under God's authority. They don't have a real sound logical reason to disbelieve in the existence of God. They don't have a real sound logical reason to disbelieve in the validity of Scripture. They don't have a real sound logical reason to disbelieve in the resurrection of Christ. They just don't want to be required to do what God says. They want to be their own bosses. They want to be in charge of their own lives. And it leads to destruction. So see, besides learning where the hurt and the pain and the hardship of our world came from, this passage is helpful to remind you and me of the significant call on our lives to rightly keep the word of God. God has spoken. He has told us how to please him. And can I tell you this as a little side note? The Bible's not that hard to understand. Now... 
You might whip out passages about women riding dragons in Revelation and say to me, oh really? And I will bow to the fact that yes, that's tough. But how much of the Bible is that? And how much of the Bible is simple things like love your neighbor as yourself? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, follow your husband's lead. Parents, teach your children to believe in Jesus. Children, obey your parents. Most of the Bible is pretty darn clear, folks. God has told us what he requires of us. And we have no right in any circumstance to question the Word of God, to change the Word of God, or to ignore the Word of God. We don't have that right. We are called by God to rightly keep His Word by believing what His Word says and by obeying what it commands. And so stop and ask yourself here, how, oh God, might I better keep your Word? Because every one of us could do, could do better here, right? Do you need to read the Scriptures more? Maybe you do. Do you need to read the Bible in a more orderly fashion in order to better understand the commands of God? I, I believe most of us do, by the way. I believe most people need to have a plan and a pattern to how we read the Bible so that we don't just randomly bounce from book to book and spot to spot. We need context. We need, we need to read it as the authors wrote it. Right? Maybe you need to memorize some scripture to get the commands of God in your heart. Maybe, maybe you need to turn away from a sinful denial and begin to believe what the Bible says. Do you, need, do you need maybe to obey a particular command of God? Is there something that God says in his word, do this or don't do that, and you just flat ignore it? We talked in Sunday school this morning about uh, worrying. Doesn't it just beat us all up because, you know, a lot of us like to just fret about things? But God says don't do that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, make your request known to God. That's a command. That's not just advice. God says, I'm not allowed to worry. He says, instead, I'm supposed to pray. On and on we could go. Ask God this morning, Christians, how might I better keep your word? If you're not yet a believer, I can, I can tell you what it is. God wants you to trust in Jesus. But outside of that, Christians, God is calling you. Obey him by keeping his word. Rightly keep the word of God. Second point this morning. Fear the natural consequences of sin. Fear the natural consequences of sin. Now the next verses from 7 to 13, we're going to see several things that happened in the lives of the man and the woman after the first sin. And these are not punishments for sin, by the way. They're just the natural logical outcomes of rebellion against God. I'm going to give you four of them as subpoints here, but we could go a lot further. So the first one, the first natural consequence of sin, shame and futility. Shame and futility. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we go. It's immediately after the people eat the fruit and they are given a knowledge that they had not previously had access to. They learned what was evil along with the good they had already known. You get this, right? The eating into the tree of knowledge did not give them knowledge of good because they knew God. They knew good. The only thing eating the fruit did was open their eyes to evil. That's not something to be desired. 
And the first realization they had was that they were naked. Before, in Genesis 2.25, the couple was said to be naked without shame. They were husband and wife. They had nothing to hide. But now, for the first time in their lives, shame enters the picture. They're ashamed of how they look. They're ashamed of their nudity. They want to hide from each other. And so the couple gathers for themselves fig leaves, and they try as best they can to cover their nakedness. By the way, fig leaf underwear is not going to work. Thus enters futility and discomfort, I would guess. You ever been ashamed of yourself? You ever felt that awful feeling that starts in your gut and works its way all the way up to your face as you realize that you are wrong, that you're exposed, that others see you in your failure? Have you ever wanted just to to take it back? But you just can't fix it. How do you feel about that feeling? Hate it. But it's a natural consequence of what the first couple did. They don't rebel against God. You never feel that. Second sub-point here. Hiding from God. Hiding from God. Look at verse verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Clever little folks. They're not just ashamed. They want to hide from the God who made them and who has provided perfectly for them. Hiding from God is a natural consequence of sin. Not wanting to be near God is a consequence of rebellion against God. Even when we have to know there is no way you can hide from the one who sees all and is over all, we're dumb enough to try. Third, fear. Fear. Verses 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The man was afraid. Stop. Never before had fear been a part of the human condition. But once we rebelled against God, fear became a part of our lives. Do you like being afraid? I don't mean like a scary movie that spooks you for a second. I mean, do you like actual fear? It's terrible. Fourth, conflict and blame. Conflict and blame. 11 to 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How sad is this? God asks the man what he has done. Now, God knew what the man had already done. God knows everything. But he gives the man the opportunity to come clean, to confess, to own his failure. But the man blames two people. First, he names the woman. He wants to tell God that it was the woman's fault. He failed. But the man also says it was the woman that God gave him who failed. So, you see, the man's saying, God, it's really kind of your fault because you gave me a defective helper. (laughs) 
The woman doesn't blame the man here, at least, but she does make it clear that she thinks the serpent is to blame. The fighting with each other, blaming each other, lying about each other, throwing each other under the bus, that is a natural consequence of sin. Before the man and woman lived together, united a perfect team. Now, because of sin, they are turning on each other, and they're blaming God as well. Sin has consequences, folks. Many sins have consequences that are not divine punishments. See, that fear was not God saying, I'm going to pour some fear on you because of what you did. That's just naturally what comes when you sin. Think about how many sins have just natural consequences. Drunkenness leads to family destruction. It leads to disease. It leads to death. Right? Adultery leads to violence and emotional chaos, to family disintegration. It leads to harm done to children and destructive tendencies in society. Pornography leads to men and women who are incapable of living in the real world with real relationships. Plus, it leads to the abuse and devaluing of women. Gluttony leads to obesity, leads to disease. Gluttony leads to an overvaluing of the physical pleasure of eating. Eating food is supposed to be fun, but it's not supposed to be our God. Well, see, this passage teaches us to beware and to fear that sin has natural consequences. Disobeying God's commands always leads us into circumstances of pain and sorrow, even if we don't see it at first. There is always, always, always pain to follow sin. So what we need to do is reshape our minds so that we do fear going against the ways of God because to do so is to invite pain and to destru- invite destruction and to invite fear and invite all the rest into our lives. Fear the natural consequences of sin. But then third major point, tremble at the divine consequences of sin. Tremble at the divine consequences of sin. Here in the passage, we're going to see God individually address the serpent, the woman, and the man. And in each, he is going to throw down some consequences of sin that he is bringing to bear. First, the serpent, look at 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, i got to say this is some weird stuff. There is a weird mingling in this passage of God speaking to the animal, right, to the serpent, and to the devil behind the serpent's action. To the snake, God says it will for all of human history be an example of the humiliation that comes upon the world because of sin. Because snakes crawl in the dirt and lick it with their tongues and it's gross, right? By the way, there's nothing here that actually says that snakes like had legs before. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but the Bible doesn't say so. So let's just say this. God looked at the snake and said, you are going to be a crawling, nasty critter, and when people see you, they're going to see the humiliation of sin. Just leave it at that. 
But God's main focus here is not the animal, but the devil behind the deception, right? God says to the devil, this action of yours, deceiving the woman, that has sealed his doom. For all of human history, there's going to be a conflict between humans and the devil. And in the end, the devil is going to be destroyed as a snake whose head is crushed. Eventually, God's going to win and the devil is going to be properly judged. We know that is true. That's a consequence of sin. And thankfully, this is again, there's some hope in there. We'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, though, God speaks to the woman in verse 16. And he said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So God tells the woman of two consequences of her disobedience, two punishments for sin here. First, God says having children will hurt a lot. I have no personal experience in this arena. But according to all my sources, this is still true. Anybody who would like to testify may do so after church. But here's the thing. It wouldn't have been the case had the woman not sinned against God. I don't know how, but it wouldn't have hurt. Secondly, the woman and the man are going to be in conflict. The words of verse 16 indicate that the woman will have, quote, a desire for her husband that will go unfulfilled. The Hebrew word behind desire there is a weird uh, word. It's not used often in the Bible. But it does occur in chapter 4. So if you're looking at your Bible, look at 4, 7. Real quick. I'll show you the same word used. It's God speaking to Cain. Remember the guy that kills his brother? Here's what he says to him. Chapter 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, same word, is for you. But you must rule over it. See, There's something behind this desire concept that includes more than a longing for companionship. This is not just saying the woman's going to desire her husband to talk to her. The desire word there seems to be a longing for mastery. So it appears that the second part of the curse in Genesis 3.16, back there now, is that for all of human history there's going to be conflict between men and women. There's going to be a desire on the part of sinful women to rule over men, to have the mastery. And men are not going to allow it, but instead, sinful men are going to use that desire of women to mistreat women. I don't know how it all works, but it's going to make marriages hard. There's going to be a battle to get things right in the middle of a wrong-headed world. Marital strife, marital conflict is a result of the first human sin. Third, the man, 17 through 19, says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in the consequences that God pronounces on Adam, the man, the first thing he does is curses the earth itself. 
The ground is not going to behave as it should. Plants are not going to grow as easily and as readily as they would have. Thorns are going to exist. Crops are going to fail from time to time. Work is now going to become hard. Sweat is introduced. The man is going to work the ground hard in order to scratch up enough food to survive. It should have been easy. It should have been a pleasure. But now it's going to be hard. Earning a living becomes a chore instead of a joy. Every person who's ever hated their job, this is the curse. But you know what the worst is? Is that death is introduced. The man will die. Humans will die. God made us from the dust of the ground and eventually we all return to the ground. And so the call here is that we ought to tremble at the significant consequences of the first sin against God. The devil is doomed. Childbearing hurts. Marriage is hard. Work is hard. Pain, sweat, and death are part of life. Sin, folks, is very serious. Turning against God brings destruction. And we should know that all the ugliness of the world has come because of the rebellion of mankind against God. Think with me for a second, folks. Had this not occurred, what wouldn't exist? There would be no hospitals. There would be no ambulances. There would be no lawyers to file lawsuits. There would be no police needed to break up domestic disputes. There would be no funerals, no thorns, no sinus infections or allergies, no broken bones, no divorce. No unemployment, no starvation, no human trafficking, no orphaned children, no poverty, no cancer, no death. Friends, we hate these things, don't we? Do you not hate that those things have to exist? If you don't, something's wrong. We should hate that sin has done this to us. Tremble at the divine consequences of sin. Last point for this morning. Rejoice in the mercy of God. Rejoice in the mercy of God. This is an ugly story, guys. The first sin is something we call the fall of man. And it's terrible to behold. But the scene is not here without hope. God is better than the devil. God is smarter than the devil. The serpent thought he would ruin the plan of God, but actually he opened the door wide for God to show how great and merciful he is. And as we see the last point, I want to show you four pictures of mercy from God real fast. First, mercy. A rescuer will come. A rescuer will come. Verse 15. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
God, in pronouncing judgment on the serpent and the devil, makes a promise of tremendous significance. Some call Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel, the first good news. This, folks, is the first hint in the scripture of the ultimate story that God is unfolding. Because here we see that somebody is coming into the world. He is going to come born out of the line of the woman, and he is going to be the instrument of God's ultimate victory over the serpent and of humanity's ultimate rescue. You see, God had already planned before he ever created the world to provide a way for sinful human beings like you and me to be forgiven. God planned to send his own son into the world to suffer the consequences of sin for all of the sins that he would ever forgive. And of course that's going to hurt. It's going to be like a serpent striking his heel. But the work that God's son is going to do is going to crush the head of the devil and bring salvation to the people of God. Now, it's not all spelled out here. But as we read through the scripture, we will see time and time again that God promises and promises and promises that he is going to send somebody into the world to bring his forgiveness. And you know who that was? That was Jesus, promised right here in the garden. Second, mercy. Humanity will continue. Humanity will continue. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. See, death is the consequence of the people eating the fruit, but God chose not to kill them right away. They're the only human beings who were alive. God could have squashed them and ended the human race, but he didn't. Instead, God delayed the carrying out of his justice in order to allow the human race to survive. That is mercy. The woman is given a new name, Eve. It's a word that, that means life. It's kind of like the name Zoe, by the way, which also means life, right? She's going to have kids. She's going to be the mother of the human race. God is going to allow there to be other people. That's the mercy of God. Have you ever stopped to think that God didn't have to do this? He could have killed them. He had grace. Third, oh, this is so beautiful. Third mercy, God covers our shame. God covers our shame. Look at 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God makes clothes to cover up the nakedness of the people. The leaves they were using weren't going to work. God provided a proper covering for their shame. Folks, that is mercy. When God takes your shame and covers it so that you're not exposed, that is his kindness. Some scholars would point out to you here that this instance where God covers their shame with animal skins is the first instance in scripture of animal sacrifice. It seems likely that God took the lives of innocent animals in order to allow innocent humans to live and to have their guilt covered. By the way, does that remind you of anything that comes in the scriptures? Because that is exactly what happened on the cross when God allowed Jesus Christ to die to cover the sins of every person he would ever rescue. Jesus covers your shame. Fourth, mercy. God protects us from this earthly life. God protects us from this earthly life. 
Verse 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So finally, what does God do? He acts to prevent fallen humans from eating the fruit of the tree of life. Why? Why does God do that? Because God never intended for you and me to live forever in a world that's broken and fallen and cursed. God has something much better for his children than what we experience in the here and now. Not letting us live forever in sin is the mercy of God. And though I don't have it in my notes here today, I can tell you this. You know the tree of life shows up again, don't you? In the book of Revelation, when God talks about the return of Christ and the forever in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's not a forever punishment. It is a grace of God not to let us live forever in pain. Praise God for those mercies. So what do we do with this story? First, believe it. This is true. Let it remind you that the word of God is true. Let it call you and me to keep the word of God, to obey it, to believe it completely. Ask God, how can I better believe and obey your word? Second, let this cause you to fear the natural and the divine consequences of sin. Going against God is destructive. Battling God leads to pain and sorrow and death. Where do you need to turn from sin and follow God? But also let this account remind you of the mercy of God. God sent Jesus Christ to this earth. He was born of a woman... And and Jesus is the offspring, the offspring predicted here who crushes the head of the devil. And Jesus offers us all the grace of God. Believe in Jesus. Turn away from thinking you get to be your own boss and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Ask him for mercy. He will forgive you and cover your shame. And if you're forgiven by Jesus, rejoice in the mercy of God. God has covered your sin. God has provided for your needs. God has an eternity in front of you that is peaceful and joyful and glorious. Yeah, we live in a broken world, but the joy is that coming soon, God will set all right and we will live in his presence forever. Will you bow with me in prayer? God, I cannot overemphasize the significance of this story, of the horror of sin and of the glory of your righteousness. And I am a complete inadequate when it comes to helping the church see how significant this is. Father, Pierce us with your spirit that we might tremble at sin and rejoice at mercy. Let us become your people. Let us become your people who truly, truly honor you and live in your joy.
forever. For those who don't yet know you, I pray your mercy. I pray you would call them to trust in Christ and find grace there. For those who do know you, I pray you call us to obedience and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.